Hi everyone, my name is Simran Bhatia and I'm a staff writer for The Profile. Today I got to have a special conversation with Chad Mum. He is the executive producer for Netflix's latest sports docuseries, Full Swing. Full Swing is about golf rookies and champions as they play across the world throughout the year. Chad is also the chief creative officer of Vox Media Studios, which has produced shows like the Explained series on Netflix, Mind Over Murder on HBO, and Chefs vs. the Wild on Hulu. Chad and I dove into all things golf. We talked about the controversial live golf drama, his favorite players on the show, and women in golf. But we also talked about his creative process and what it takes to make a show like Full Swing. And let me tell you, it takes a lot of passion and grit. Make sure to subscribe to The Profile for interviews just like this one, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chad. Appreciate it. I am really excited for us to get into all things Full Swing, but also, you know, your creative process, all the other projects that you work on with Vox as well. So to just jump right into things, um, you are very obviously from your Twitter profile, an avid golf fan. So what got you into golf and what inspired you to make a show about it? So I've been playing golf sort of as long as I can remember. I guess I could say that I come from a golf family. Um, I'm a military brat, so I moved around a lot as a kid, um, but my dad was in the Air Force and every Air Force base has, you know, there's a runway and a golf course. The joke is that like, those are the two most important things to build when you're building a new Air Force base. Um, my dad uh, got into golf when I was a little kid, and then my grandfather actually also uh, was an avid player. He was he was also an Air Force pilot. Um, and my earliest memory of my granddad would be to go going and visiting him, and he had a, a shop in his garage where he would build clubs for his friend. He was kind of like a tinkerer, and he'd do like regrip clubs for people and put new shafts in, and, and just like the smell of like the mineral spirits from regripping a golf club, and like the sound of him sawing down shafts, like. It's the kind of one of the earliest memories I have of my grandpa. It was like centered around golf. And so um, I started playing when I was six years old. I lived in Northwest Florida at this like, you know, military golf course. And I went and did like a summer camp for a week and like learned how to hit the ball. And and I finished the week with a, a little six hole golf tournament. My dad was out watching me and I somehow like won the tournament and made this putt on the last hole to win the thing. And uh, after playing golf for like six days and it was, I was hooked for the rest of my life. You know, for me, golf's always been there. And I, you know, I played as a kid and, and then throughout high school, I played competitively as like a junior, you know, it was always kind of knew I wasn't good enough to be a pro, but uh, when I was a freshman, that's when Tiger, you know, really exploded onto the scene. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I was on the golf team and I became like obsessed. So I would watch every golf tournament I could and, um, and, you know, read every magazine and every book and, and, you know, work. My first job was at a golf store. And so for me, I, the, doing this show has been kind of a labor of love and a passion project because yeah, I feel like golf's given me so much. And so to finally get to bring that all together and, and make a show that kind of introduces this world and this game to like millions and millions of people who maybe had a preconceived notion about what they thought of when they think of golf. Uh, but to kind of subvert that expectation and show people how captivating it can be uh, yeah. is really like a dream come true. So, yeah. So actually, since you've been interested in, you know, the sport of golf for such a long time, and you've also been, you know, chief creative officer for Vox for some time now, I'm surprised that you didn't create a show like Full Swing earlier in your career. So why did you choose to produce it now rather than much earlier? 
Well, I tried. <laughs> I've been trying for close to nine years uh, wow. since it made. Um, you know, I think it, like anything, um, you know, it's all about timing and having, you know, being at the right place, at the right time, having the right relationships. Um, I first met the PGA Tour kind of executive team that oversees their media partnerships uh, back in 2012. So we went down to the tour's headquarters and we pitched them on like a partnership with Vox Media to do a bunch of golf stuff. And one of the ideas was a doc series following PGA Tour players kind of on and off the golf course. And um, we ended up not getting the business, which is uh, was like a crushing blow. But um, but they knew that, you know, they could tell that I was like a real fan of the and a real golfer, you know. Um, yeah. And so we stayed in touch and I, I became friends with the execs who were in that meeting from the tour. I kept seeing them. And, and back in, in 2016, I pitched them again and said, I think now's the time. Let's do like our hard knocks. And, and the tour was, they loved the idea, but they're like, it's just not going to happen internally. You know, like we just can't get the buy-in. Um, fast forward, you know, two more years of seeing them and kind of pitching it again. And okay. our studio had. Very persistent, off. very persistent. Well, I loved it, you know, and, and, and again, like I said, it's all about timing. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the studio had really exploded in that from sort of 2015 to 2019. And we were making shows for Netflix and Hulu and HBO and Apple and, and you know, won some, you know, Emmys and like had really emerged as like a real nonfiction powerhouse in Hollywood. Um, and, and we played golf at Shadow Creek, which is like the hardest golf course to get on. I get the invite, we go play Shadow Creek and I bring it back up again. And the big difference this time was a couple months earlier, the PGA Tour got a new commissioner. So Jay Monahan got yeah. promoted up to be commissioner of the tour. And I think, you know, in the, in the Jay regime, they, they were more open to look at something like this. So over that course of that round, we kind of hashed out what it would need to look like and we had a deal. And so I had the rights to make a documentary series on the PGA Tour and started to, to go to players and, and ask them to be a part of it. And then, you know, from 2019, into 2020, we added the majors, you know, so we had Augusta and then we got the rest of the governing bodies on board and, and COVID happened, which actually in some ways was probably the best thing that could have happened to this project because, you know, the golf governing bodies, which are, you know, there's the PGA tour, which runs the professional league um, and runs all their tournaments, but then there's like the four majors and the four majors are run by different organizations. They're not run by the PGA tour. Historically, like they don't collaborate on content together. They, they kind of have their own turf. And, uh, but because of COVID, they had to kind of come together and remake the golf calendar because golf was actually the first professional sport to be back on the air. They were like already at the table together. And, and so it really primed the pump for them to kind of all throw in together and say, okay, we're going to collaborate for sort of the first time in history on like a content project. And it was this show. And then the other big break that happened is about a month into COVID, a little show called Drive to Survive season two came out. <laughs> and, and because everybody was stuck at home, like devouring everything on Netflix, you know, that show really exploded in popularity. And I think season one, like did okay, but season two was when it really like emerged as a phenomenon. Correct. And so, um, you know, so that kind of was like, oh my God, now we have this thing to point to about what this can look like. And, and it really put some wind in our sails. So then Netflix got involved. Um, I ended up meeting with the team that makes Tribe to Survive. From there, like the rocket was lit and... You know, fast forward to February 15th this year, the show premieres, and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> you know, we're making yeah. season two right now, so. That's amazing. You know, one thing that you mentioned was about how you started going to players to, um, you know, bring them aboard. 
I'm wondering how receptive were the players to the idea of a Netflix show and what was it like getting them to agree to interviews? Because I'm sure there might've been some people who were like, nah, I don't want to be in the spotlight like that. And then others were probably like, yes, let's go. Let's rally around it. So what was that process like? First thing to know, the PJ Tour works for the players, not the other way around. So golf, pro golf is kind of different from other major leagues like the NFL or the Major League Baseball in that like the commissioner of the tour like works for the members, which is the players. You know, the tour was really like, we can introduce you to agents, but we really can't make the players do anything. So you've got to go like mince them. And, um, and originally before Netflix got involved, you know, the, the there were a handful of players the first player to say yes was Ricky Fowler. And, you know, Ricky is very forward thinking in terms of media. And he had a production company that he started called Main Event Productions. And they had made a series or partnered on a series um, of basketball show for Netflix. So he's he was already kind of thinking about Hollywood. And to this day, like go to a PGA Tour event, you're going to see dozens of like 12-year-old kids with like orange shirts on and orange Puma hats because of Ricky Fowler. So, you know, he, he has a real connection with the fan base. And so he, uh, so he was the first player to say yes, which was, which was great. And once Ricky was on board, we added like Justin Thomas and Tony Finau and a player named Cameron Champ. Um, and from there, that was kind of our core. And then we sort of built out from there. So I think there was a little bit of like, you know, okay, well, Ricky's doing it. Um, you know, he's always been comfortable with cameras, but then when JT said yes and Tony said yes, I think it was like, there was a little bit of a groundswell of like, okay, this is going to be this is going to be something. And then Drive to Survive like blew up. So half the PGA Tour like was stuck during COVID. They watched it too. And so then they were like, oh, this is going to be like that? Like, that's cool. Like I want my sport and this thing I've dedicated my life to, you know, getting better at, I want that to get the treatment of the rock and roll, like race car, you know, fiery explosions <laughs> kind of nail soap opera thing. So they were into it. And, and I think that, you know, they also understood the potential opportunity to grow their audience beyond just hardcore golf fans. Uh, but, you know, we're not paying the players. So you know, they had to opt in. Every player has full kind of control of the access that they grant. They yeah. don't have editorial control. They don't get to look at cuts. They don't get to say what we can include and can include, but because we're not paying them, they, they kind of can pull out. Like they could say, they could change their mind and say, you know what, I'm done. And then we just, they're not going to be in the show and we're just not going to have anything. So yeah. for us, we just kind of had to show up and, and build trust so they could understand that we were really not the media. Like we weren't going to tweet something the next day. You know, there, there, there is a golf media bubble and that like they're surrounded by reporters and there's a lot of tweets and a lot of like breaking news and, and, you know, they're, they're very guarded because of that. And so yeah. I think that for us, we started off the conversation by saying, no matter what happens on this show, audiences aren't going to see it for a year or nine months. Yeah. And, and even if they do, and it's a, you know, a moment where you just lost the biggest tournament in your life and you're upset, we're going to have a year's worth of context around that moment. It's not going to be taken out of context. And we're yeah. going to be able to show how you came back from that. And so you've got to be able to let us in, even in those kind of lowest points, yeah, it sounds like um, a huge trust building exercise that doesn't take place overnight, probably took place over the course of several months. Um, you did touch on uh, a, a few things about Drive to Survive success. I'm wondering, did you ever feel any pressure to live up to the success of such a hit show like Drive to Survive? And, and how did you measure impact or compare impact? Oh, God, yeah. That, that was the... 
that was the high bar we had to clear. And I always felt like it was unfair to our show to, to have that be the model because Drive to Survive literally changed a sport forever, you know, and, and created so much value for Formula One and introduced it to millions and millions of people who are now like going to races. There's multiple races in the U.S. now. I mean, you've seen the impact that's been written about ad nauseum. Yeah. So I always thought that was a bit unfair for us because like that's like a generational kind of show. You just don't get a hit like that ever. And that may be a once in a lifetime thing. So, you know, I did my best to kind of try to downplay that, like, that's what we don't compare us to Drive to Survive. It's going to be its own thing. Um, but it turns out that, like, it did come out like that. And it and it was, you know, it has very similar reach and, and impact. And, and you're starting to see the ratings for the Masters were up. And, you know, the, the ratings for the most recent tournament, the RBC Heritage was way up. And, and you know, I, I can't imagine that our show had nothing to do with that. And, uh, and yeah. so, you know, I'm very proud that we can even stand like shoulder to shoulder with Drive to Survive. As a creative officer though, um, you mentioned something about hit shows, but you've also produced several other shows on Netflix. What has to be true about a show or a film for it to be a hit in your experience? You know, I think that one of the key tenets though for the shows that really have broken out is they've always had a really unique moat around them creatively. And for Full Swing, the moat was our unprecedented access. And nobody had ever gotten that access, ever. It wasn't like this was come out a couple of years ago and work and now we're trying to get it. I mean, nobody had ever been in the places that our cameras were in. Nobody had ever been at home with these players. For other shows we've made, like Explained, which is, you know, it's been a very popular show on Netflix and was kind of our first like hit show that had a format that was completely novel. It was short documentaries, 20 to 25 minutes long that took you all the way deep on a topic that you might be really curious about, but that you didn't necessarily feel like watching a 90 minute movie about. And you get that little dopamine rush of like, I understand this thing now. And then we bring you back and then we feed you another one. And it didn't involve having to invest the 90 minutes into like a documentary about it you could just do 25 minutes and then boom the next one and do the next one the barrier to entry as a viewer was like oh i'm i'm curious about cryptocurrency or i'm curious about female orgasm or i'm curious about you know credit cards or on and on and on and uh and then just like pay it off so you know you've got to find that creative moat and what what we always say when we're developing shows that we're going to pitch is if there's anyone else in the world who could do this do it with them that that's that's like the chip we have on our show that's the bar we have to hit we want every project that we take out to we are the only people in the world who could make it and so i say to our teams and to myself all the time like how do we build a moat around a project and that could be a creative moat that could be an access moat that could be ip um, but how do we make it where we're the only people in the world who could really deliver this i want to pivot into all the hot button topics that came out of the show um, you might see this question coming, but for the listeners and viewers who may not know, there's been a hot controversy in golf for a little over two, three years now about a new golf league joining called Live or Live Golf. And it has like 12 teams, 48 players. It's supposed to be the more action-packed version of golf. So I'm curious, is Netflix or Vox neutral in the debate between like Live Live Golf versus PGA? Is, is there any neutrality there or are you picking sides to make it juicy? 
Well, we we had no idea that that was coming. And so, of course, you know, it's hard to talk about season one without talking about the rise of live golf and the yeah. kind of rivalry with P the PGA tour. Uh, the, what, what ended up happening was we, you know, we had committed to a lot of players, you know, as I said, we had 28 players signed up for season one and we were filming with them all year and we had gotten deep access and a handful of those players left in the middle of the season to go to live. And what we had told the tour and what we had told those players is that we, if it's important to you, it's important to us. We're not going to take a side. We're going to tell your story with authenticity. If you, if you let us in, you know, you're going to get something out of it. And we're going to basically tell your story of your year back to you and back to the viewers. So we didn't take a side. Our first thought was this is going to, this is going to ruin our show because we're going to lose access to people because they're going to leave. Everyone's going to, there's all kinds of lawsuits. Everyone's going to clam up. Nobody's going to want to talk about this. That was a short-lived feeling because it became also very obvious that now we have this unprecedented controversy in a, in a sport that, that I would argue is maybe unprecedented in any the history of any pro sport. I mean, there's certainly been breakaway leagues in basketball and football, and there was an attempt to do this in professional soccer in Europe, but never that never happens during the season, you know, while players are still in the same locker room and competing against each other. It That's was true. wild. And very quickly, we also realized, well, actually, maybe this is, this is going to be like good for us and not, not good for golf. Certainly I would say, argue it's probably, you know, it's created a lot of um, ugliness in general around the sport, but, uh, but certainly from a narrative perspective, it gave a macro urgency to like everybody's story. And, and there was real controversy in a sport that is pretty gentlemanly and, and pretty convivial, like the professionals there that you, it's like a, the way I described the life on the PGA tour, it's kind of like being in high school like there's little clicks, but you're kind of all like when you're a senior in high school, everybody remembers like you kind of yeah. run the campus, you know, and everything's familiar. You've been in that cafeteria your whole high school career. You kind of know the drill. That's kind of what it's like being on the tour. It's the same kind of people week in and week out, um, the, the same sort of setups. You know, you've been to the same places over and over. And there's like a there may not be friendship across all of it, but there's sort of a general appreciation of like, hey, we've gotten here. Like we made it to this thing. And all of a sudden you inject this really critical question about like, what are you here for? Are you here for legacy? Are you trying to win golf tournaments? Are you trying to write golf history? Or is this a job to you? And, and are you comfortable with sort of the moral questions that arise around the source of this funding of this league? And, you know, we didn't have to ask the questions of the players like the, the media did out of the gate. And all of a sudden you've got you know, I'm in the press building and it's not just Golf Digest and Golf.com and no laying up. It's like Bloomberg and CNN. It's like the yeah. New York Times who are there because this is all of a sudden a geopolitical question. And, and, and all of a sudden these players who were used to their press conferences, you know, talking about like what club they hit on number seven um, and, and, you know, the missed putt they made to miss the cut, like that transition into like questions about the existential threat to the game and what you were really doing it for, which, which just made for a fascinating kind of backdrop to build a show around. And, and I think that we were really fair to both sides of, I think we presented the case on either side. We certainly had access to players that I think audiences and I would say like really felt justified in their decision. I think about somebody like Dustin Johnson, who, you know, I, I was extremely transparent about his rationale for leaving and I, it's hard to argue against it. You know, it's sort of, 
you may disagree, but at least he is confident in his decision. And there was sort of no equivocation about it for him. It's a job and he was going to get paid more to play less. So one thing that um, we noticed, it was all male players that were tracked um, across PGA, but Breakpoint, for example, does a great job of giving equal screen time to the, to the female tennis players, as well as the male tennis players and tracking their stories. So is there a plan for full swing to start tracking female golf professionals in future seasons? Do you think there's an opportunity there for full swing to explore that? I would love to do that. I, the women professionals are unbelievably good. And, and there's, there's, you know, I'm as a diehard golfer, I'm like obsessed with golf Twitter. Um, and there's this like undercurrent of golf Twitter, not in like the professionals of people who know, but like, I don't know, bros on golf Twitter who just like think they could go beat the women like as like a hacker. And I don't know, you know, it's sexist and misogynistic, but like they are so good. It's unbelievable. And you'd ask some of these PGA tour players, I think, you know, that there are women out there that are better iron players than they are better putter than they are. You know, they may not hit it as far, but like they are blown away by their game and they see it up close. And if, if you ever get a chance to go to a women's event, like a, a LPGA tour event, it's you should because it's like mind blowing how precise and how good they are. Um, so I think the, the first question, the, the, to answer your question, I think I would love to do that. I think that there is a inherent challenge that's different in professional golf than, than in tennis in that, like, there are no shared events. You know, there, there's been some attempts to do that. There's an event in Australia, the Australian open, that's a mixed event. Uh, that's one event, you know, in the whole year. And then there's, uh, they're going to be doing a new event this year, uh, at the end of the season called the Grant Thornton Invitational that's going to pair up a PGA tour player with an LPGA tour player which will be, you know, one of those events. And we hope to highlight that as a way to kind of introduce the women into the sport. From a production standpoint, it would be really hard to weave the LPGA into full swing because you would essentially have to double the size of the production budget because we would have to be at two events every weekend instead of one. And we'd be in totally different cities on totally different schedules. So it's my hope in season two to introduce some of the women players. I think it would be, I think it deserves to be its own show. That would be amazing. And I would 100% watch that the day it comes out in its entirety. A piece of feedback that I saw online and in talking to other people about the show is that there's a lot of golf fans and viewers of the show that have expressed a desire to hear the conversation between a player and the caddy, like on, on the green. And they want to see how strategy gets adjusted in real time. What kind of creative decisions did you make specifically for the structure of the show that you thought would resonate really well with the audience? And, and what more do you think could you do there? So I definitely think we heard that feedback from season one and, and our, our hope in season two is to, is to give even more of that kind of on-course strategy elements that, you know, we can kind of rip from Drive to Survive because certainly those conversations are happening. Um, for us, the, the, the key creative thesis of the show was that it's not about the tournaments, it's about the characters. And ultimately the goal is to, to make you empathize, whether you're falling in love with them or not, but like really get inside the curtain of, of, a, of a character, of a player. And the way that you do that is obviously you meet them, you see them off the course, but you also hear from like the important people in their life, whether it's their spouse or their caddy or their coach or their friends. Um, and you and you get that different perspective in a way that just doing an interview with the player won't get give you. And you use that to kind of build a story that's character focused. These shows aren't going to be effective if they're just recaps of what happened. They have to introduce a new human element and they've got to make you care about what happens on the course by using 
the off the course stuff to create a you know a character and, and and bring you on their journey. And I think like you know I, people ask me a lot like what's your favorite episode of Full Swing, and they're all I, I think I could make arguments for all of them, but to me episode five, which is the U.S. Open episode with Matt Fitzpatrick and Dustin Johnson, I think is like probably the most complete version of that narrative. The journey that Matt Fitzpatrick goes on in that 40 minutes is like, you could write, teach a screenwriting class about it. You know, you meet him, you establish who he is, where he comes from. You see these obstacles that are in his way. I still get chills like thinking about that in the show. <laughs> I watched it a thousand times giving notes on it when we were cutting it. It's still just, it works so well. Everybody watching Full Swing, I think had some sort of anticipation for when are we going to get to see Tiger? Like, when are, is he going to sit for an interview? Is it going to be next episode? So I'm wondering, did you feel like we need someone like Tiger, who is in a lot of ways, like the face of golf for the past, like, you know, however many years, did you feel the pressure to have Tiger? And when you weren't able to get that access, did you feel like you had lost some part of your vision or do you feel like you don't need someone like Tiger for a show like Full Swing to be successful in the way that it is? Well, I think that the, the, we've already answered the question, the second question, which, you know, I don't think you need Tiger for to make a show like this successful. Yeah. Um, and then I also think that there's a, there's a risk with Tiger that, that he would become the whole show because he is such a monolith. And, and Tiger is one of the most interesting sporting figures in history ever you know there there's nobody like tiger i would put him up with muhammad ali and you know michael jordan and like that's it pretty much secretariat maybe you know like who who completely transfixed the entire planet and and turned them into fans and got them to tune in um and so you know the risk of, with having someone like tiger again he didn't give us that access so it's not like i said like tiger <laughs> We don't want you, but you know, yeah. you would risk like overpowering all these other stories. Um, what, what was really interesting too is like Tiger, Tiger has really become a father figure for a lot of these players. And and so the way that we wanted to treat him in the show was was more like a fulcrum around which like some of these characters' stories pivoted. So for Tony Finau and for Colin Morikawa, like they both they're playing golf because of Tiger. And for different reasons, like Tony you know, he says it in the episode, you know, when he saw Tiger win the Masters in 1997, he's like, oh, there's someone who looks like me and he's playing golf. Like I can do, maybe I can do that. And then for Colin, you know, he took Tiger's work ethic and kind of perfectionism and, and commitment to like getting better constantly and said like, if that's the bar that I got to hit, like I'm already a really good golfer, but I got to take it to another level. Like I see what this guy's doing and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to learn from that. And so, you know, he just, he had such an impact on everybody. And, and to be honest, when we started making this show, the first thing we did was we brought in a bunch of players. I think we did 12 interviews in two days. And we, we were down at Tiger's event, of course, at Tiger's event in the, in the Bahamas. And there's a recording studio right next to the golf course. It's kind of this like in this resort area. And there's this really hip recording studio there. So we set up in the studio, we brought in all these players and we did our first interviews. And every single one of them, the first thing they said, the reason why I play golf is because of Tiger. And, and we didn't prompt them to say that. It was like, hey, how did you get into golf? Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. And then, then you know, pressing on it, they all sort of took different things from the Tiger story. But, but you know, make no doubt about it. He's the reason why they were there. In the eighth episode, you know, Roy McIlroy wins the tour championship. And, you know, he's, he's the closest thing, you know, probably in some ways to Tiger that we've had, you know, so in some ways kind of an heir apparent, um, you know, generational player, Hall of Fame player. 
And, and, you know, Rory gets a text from Tiger in the locker room, like right as he's basking in his win. And you just like see his face change to like being 12 years old again, yeah. you know, getting a text from your hero. It was so authentic that you couldn't, you know, script that or force that. And, and just to kind of see the, the shift in his body language when he sees the text, it's like, it's a powerful scene. And, yeah. and that's, that's Tiger. Like that's the tiger that we know and that we saw and that we got to see through the player's eyes. Um, yeah. So, you know, even though he's not interviewed, I think you feel him. It's very obvious through this whole conversation that you're very passionate about golf and you've had this vision of what the show should look like and you've been pitching it for so many years. So as a leader of, you know, the creative team at Fox Media Studios, how do you rally a group of individuals like your creatives who are on your team, how do you rally them around your vision? And what does that creative process look like? You have to believe in it, you know, always. And, and we make, we've made a lot of shows. I think we've had 50 plus series that we've premiered in the last sort of five, six years. Um, and, and every one of those shows, whether it's me or it's one of my execs on my team, like we believe in it, like to our core, because it's hard making a television show or a film is really difficult work. And by the way, it doesn't matter the budget. Like a $15 million show is just as difficult as a million dollar show. And, and you have to love it. You have to buy in and you have to care. And I think like the good news is, is we don't have to sell a thousand television shows to have a really good business, a uh, good creative business. And, and that means we can really bet on stuff that we believe in. And so that's, you know, that's sort of the first thing is what, how does it get on? How does a project go from an idea to getting onto our slate? It's like, well, we've got to have a champion. We've got to have someone who lives and breathes it. And, and like, there's a drive beyond just like the financial component of like making this thing. It's like, it has to exist in the world and you're not going to rest until it's out there. And I think like, you know, having, being a creative person myself, like that's, that's always the best sales strategy. Cause like, if you don't believe in it, then how could you convince someone else to buy it? I learned something really early or early-ish in my career from Ezra Klein, who was my executive producer partner on explain the way I describe it is like, he, it just falls out of him. Like he can just literally go off and in 20 minutes, like write something. And it feels like it comes out fully formed on the page. Like he just, he can't help himself. It just, it's like there in the ether and he's just finding it and he's just, it just flows. And it's like, he has to make, he has to create. It's sort of his, it's not, I mean, I'm sure it's, he would say it's hard and, you know, it takes a lot of work, which it does, but, but it just falls out of him. And, and that's where like you, you, when you are around creative people who are like the real talent in the creative side, like they all have that in common. It just falls out of them, you know? And for me, this show fell out of me. Like, this is my passion and I can, and I can talk about it at length because it is, it just, it, it was always there and it just falls out. You've got it. It has to exist. That's why yeah. it, I fought for nine years to make it. People want to be on a team that has a mission. And, and if the leader of that team is like, believes in it with all their heart and is going to make those sacrifices to make it real, you know, that, that is a fun That's fun work. That's why people are, that's why we're not accountants. Um, to dig deeper into you know, once you have the idea and once you have people on your team and they're on board, how do you draw inspiration for what the structure of a show or a film should be like? Like outside of Full Swing, the plethora of other shows that you have, um, is there like mood boarding that takes place or are there books that are read or people reference other shows? Obviously for, you know, Full Swing, we know other Netflix docuseries were, were inspirations for, for some of the structure of the show, but 
what kind of inspirations um, or people do you speak to um, to decide on what a show should even look like, like what the end product should look like and how are you going to get there? Being a producer or working in this business, like it gives you a chance to do a lot of different things and to, to kind of get excited and curious about a lot of different things. You know, we, we do, we do a lot of different stuff. Sometimes we'll, we'll make Bibles, you know, we write a lot. We do a lot of like, try to get it into words, you know, what we're trying to do. Um, we'll mood board things. It's not so much like, you know, mood boarding, like we're not making Pinterest boards, but we'll, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll like aesthetically what we want to do. There's a lot of YouTube clips being shared around. You know, I, I could say that there's a explained the the style and tone of explained was was really really influenced by a I think two minute long YouTube video that was like a short biography of John Baldessari the artist that came out in like 2008 and it's on YouTube somewhere like that style that like two minute video like really inspired explained and you could look it up and you see it you'll be like oh yeah that feels like explained but we watched that like a hundred times when we were putting that show together wow and it's just like a random video that some artist made, you know, some art kid made about John Baldessari. Um, and so, so yeah, the inspiration kind of can come from anywhere. And part of the fun of the process is you get to build a team and you're surrounded by creative people who all have their own ideas and they're all bringing their own references and they're thinking through the tone and the style and they're pushing, you know, everybody's pushing each other to kind of elevate things. Um, you know, we do reading, we do a lot of reading. You know, we had a show that came out on HBO this summer called Mind Over Murder. Um, which was about six people in Nebraska who who confessed to a crime that they didn't commit. And, and it really was about the nature of memory and, and what is truth. And that was an article that we read in the New Yorker. Like one of our execs read it in the New Yorker and became obsessed with it. And, and in that case, like the rights to that article had been sold off. And he was so passionate about it that he went to Nebraska and just like was let, didn't leave until he had met all the people involved in the story and kind of signed them up to our project because you know we had the access to the actual people and he was able to he was obsessed enough with it that he was able to pull it all together and get people to trust him in that community and then and then we had our moat you know we didn't might not have had the article but we had the people that that, that were the principal characters so you know it takes it could be it could come from anywhere kind of the inspiration um and the and the passion and the fun of it is that you kind of when you jump into any of these projects for the first time you kind of never know where it's going to lead you recently tweeted this like unknown fact um, about like a fresh egg or a fresh ball going farther on a play than an older ball. So through the shooting of Full Swing, what were some random interesting things that you learned throughout filming the show? And it could be about golf, but in general, maybe it could have been about filming a show and, and getting players. I think the, the one of the first things that I learned, professional athletes, if you, the first time you interview them, if you put the cameras on them and you put the lights in the room, like they're going to clam up and kind of go into like their media training mode, you know, and they all kind of have yeah. talking points and it's really easy for them. They do interviews after every round, you know, for the most part, and there's media in their face all the time. They do a lot of TV interviews, but it's all kind of in the context of competition. And so you, you if you look like those interviews, then you're going to get those kind of interviews. And so what I love about what those, what Box to Box does they've learned over the course of many years of making you know sports stocks with big name athletes is that the first interview we don't even film it we just record it with audio and it's like a podcast almost where yes. there's just a mic on their lav and they forget it's there and, and we ask them to come in street clothes and you know and we sit in comfortable chairs and we just sort of talk and and all of a sudden you blink and it's been an hour and a half and you've gotten to know them as a person and they're not just giving their talking points so that was like a really kind of bold and, and I thought 
you know, you, you've got limited access to people and you're going to blow one of them and not even be able to use it on camera. But it, it, it shows you the real story. It introduces you to the real person. And that was like a brilliant, that's a brilliant idea. And I think like something that I'll take on the rest of my career and, and, and do, you know, on the golf side, I think that like the thing that I learned that was fascinating besides the, that all the tour players are using really fresh golf balls and like, performance degrades pretty quickly after they come out. And I don't even know if the ones you're buying in the golf stores, like if they're as hot as the ones that are out there on the tour. Um, but that's kind of neither here nor there. I mean, to me, it's just like the, the, the margin of difference between a player who's like top 10 and like 250th in the world is like one shot per round. And so they're all so close every time. And you just never know when like a decision is going to matter, you know, and, and like they all, every shot counts the same, you know, it's all one stroke. And so like a, a lazy thought on a Thursday in round one, you're playing, you tee off at eight in the morning, it's overcast or cold, you get lazy on one swing, you're mentally not there and you end up making a bogey. Like that could be the difference in making the cut or missing the cut or winning the golf tournament or losing it. And it's like to the, the think about the pressure of being able to like get yourself up for, you know, 144 shots or however many it is, you know, over the course of four rounds and, and commit fully to each one of them is just mind blowing to me. And I, you know, I'm lucky. I love to play golf. It's like, I'm lucky if I can concentrate on 10 shots around, you know, and imagine doing that for four days with, you know, with crowd surrounding you and people cheering and distractions, you know, blimps flying overhead. Like, it's amazing like the mental strength and and i think that's also why golf is such a great canvas for human storytelling because uh it is it is like the loneliest sport in golf like you could play four rounds of the best golf of your life and just get beat by somebody you know like that it just happens to get hotter or got a good break when you got a bad break and like and and there you're playing against the entire field that anybody could win it is really taxing emotionally and mentally. And I think that you like, you know, golf sport that you don't win that often. And so imagine also like being around professional athletes and I've been lucky to be around a lot of pro athletes. Like, you know, most athletes don't like mentally can't handle like winning like 2% of the time. Like these are athletes that are prone to winning. Like they've won their whole life. You're a football player. Imagine like how satisfied you'd be if you're a professional football player who's only won like three games this entire career. You know, it's a, it's a freaking brutal sport to like rationalize and square like a lifetime of effort going into like a handful of times where you actually get to stand on top of the podium and hold the trophy and be the champion. Like the drive to get back out there over and over and to keep the fight going is yeah. just like really, really tough and really mentally exhausting and physically exhausting too, which is, that's the other thing I would say that I really learned is like, is just being even personally, like being on the road last year, I have a family, I have small children um you know i have a real job too running the studio like it's exhausting being on the road you know and, and being there filming and i'm not even like hitting golf shots i'm just like directing our teams and out there on the golf course like following the action it's really exhausting and you know it doesn't matter if you're staying in an airbnb or a really nice hotel like there's it's not your bed you know you don't have your stuff you're living out of a suitcase and then as soon as it's over you go to the next week and you're in a new bed in a new hotel and you got to make sure you're eating well and you're making time for fitness and, and then having a normal life and having friendships and staying in touch with your family. Like it's a really lonely life and it can be really difficult, like life on the road. Your passion really bleeds through. And I can see why, even though it was exhausting, you were there at so many of these different uh, golf events and, and we're so involved. We 
ask one last question of all of the people that we interview on the profile. So in a few words, what does the word success mean to you? I always think of success as like a direction. And I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I've never been a goal oriented person. To okay. me, I, I think about like direction. And so I've always thought to me, instead of a goal, a goal is something that you can reach. I always think about it as, am I going north? Like I have a direction I feel pulled towards and I'm not trying to think about what I'm going to reach. I mean, you can never get to north. You're just going north. And for me, success is about calibrating. Like, am I still going north? You know, and and like, I know I'm never going to reach it. I, you know, if you ask me, what's my goal? It's like, do I want to be like head of HBO one day or what? I don't know. Like, I'm just going north and I'm constantly checking against like, okay, am I still going north? And, and really success for me is I'm still going north.